I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Kelly James is the founder and CEO of Mercaris, a market data service and trading platform for organic, non-GMO, and other certified agricultural commodities. What that translates to is a whole lot of innovation to create bigger business out of small and sustainable farming and agriculture. Let's talk first about where you grew up. Okay. You were a military brat. Yeah, army brat. So my dad was uh, was army. He was infantry. And then he um, actually left the military. The army paid for him to go back to school. He went to med school and yeah. he came back in as an army doc. And my mom was taking care of the home and yeah. she grew up in the Bronx, um, but her family is um, from the Bahamas, but she was born and raised in, in the Bronx. Right. So. Well, it's very hard, I think, for one, when you're raising a family in the military, for both people to yeah. really work because you're always moving from place to place. Well, it's crazy now, especially like when I grew up, that was the case now. I mean, army salaries are notoriously pretty low. So mm-hmm. really it takes both spouses to make it work now. So now like army wives, army spouses, like almost always, you know, are working now or have to work. But it, in the old days, like old days, you know, 20 years ago, right. 20 years ago, you didn't, you didn't have that. Well, it's just like 20 years ago, you could have a one income family, yeah, you well, know, and that true. really is not what the case is these that's days. So true. But you were a horseback rider. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because it's not that um, horses has this like very like wealthy image and part of that's well-deserved. But um, the army bases, most of them, many of them had stables because it used to be the cavalry was four-legged instead of armored. And so there's this legacy of like stables that are at diff- different army posts. So it's something I could do everywhere we went. I found an old bill the other day. We boarded a horse there for $45 a month. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> it was subsidized by, you know, by the, by the by military. Sam, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So something I could always do. My parents were like, where in the world did we get you? Because they were both city folk. And my sister and I, from the time we could like talk, we just were obsessed with horses. And that's, you know, everywhere I went. It's a very female thing. Here it is. Over in Europe, it's a very masculine sport. That's so funny. Well, the polo. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a very different thing. Well, then except the Western, like that's the sort of Western, like masculine type thing. But like English jumping, that was, you know. Yeah, like that's little funny. girls obsessed with horses. We were. So I know that you were, you know, you had this thing in your head that you were going to be the first black yeah. um, gold medalist. Yes. I was going to the Olympics. I was like, You're going to the no Olympics. Halfway. I'm like going straight to the You're going straight to the Olympics and you were going to win multiple times gold <laughs> right, medals over the right, years. Right. Um, you know, and yeah. you were going to be the first. Yeah. Exactly. And then what happened? Well, so um, first of all, we never had the money for me to have like really like amazing horses. I always was like, all right, I'll get these young, like crazy, terrible horses, but that are talented and I'll help train them. And that's how I'll you know make it. So I worked for a series of trainers and it was amazing. I loved it. It was my life. I mean, horse people are so obsessed. I mean, much like entrepreneurs. Yes. It's an obsession. It is an obsession. And it's a very vertical into itself. Yes. Yes. Its own language, its own. Yeah. So I got jobs with great riders and I, what was called catch riding. So you don't have the money to own your own horse, but you apprentice or you work as an assistant trainer for someone else and you ride all these fantastic horses. But I developed this little niche, which is a terrible niche to develop of being like a reputation of being able to ride difficult horses. So that's what I did. Um, I worked for Margie Goldstein um, Angle, who is 
a phenomenal rider, multiple, you know, Olympian and multiple, you know, top of the top of her profession. And I was riding a couple of horses for her. And that's, you know, and I rode racehorses on the side as well, but jumpers was my true, you know, my true love. Your so love. That's what I, right. That's what I did. And you were thrown from a horse. Yeah. So I was riding a, mm-hmm. I was riding a client's horse in, um, it was a competition in Ohio and uh, I was galloping up to a fence. You can like picture how they you know, kind of lift their feet over the fences. Yes. And this horse decides- Not to. Not to go. <laughs> he had his front feet up in the air and decides, oh, I don't think so. So he basically did like a papa wheelie. So I'm sitting on this horse. He decides, he slides and goes right over backwards. And I got caught between the horse and the ground. And a friend of mine who's a photographer caught it frame by frame. I mean, I just disappear under this horse, 1,200 pounds. You can How see like the tip scary. of my boot sitting, <laughs> sticking out. So yeah, I, I tell people I broke the horse's fall. <laughs> yes, yes. And what happened to you? You broke yeah, what? I broke my back. I, I did a bunch of things. I, I broke my back. I fractured my ankle, my tore my, broke, tore like three ligaments in my knee. There's only four ligaments. I tore three of them. And uh, long story short, I was out of commission. I had surgery. I was out of commission for like six months of physical therapy. I am very, very fortunate that I was not paralyzed. It you were just, extremely fortunate. You were not It could paralyzed. have been like a Christopher Reeve situation. Yeah. I, after therapy, I was able to walk away from it. So. And how old were you then? I was. I just graduated undergrad, so I was 21. And yeah. so this was going to be your life. Yeah. And what was your plan B? Uh, so here's what the thing is. I have a deficient sense of danger maybe because I did six months of physical therapy and I went back to riding. I got a job with a trainer in the Netherlands. And so I went back to riding after that. <laughs> you know, so, you know, they say if you fall off the horse, you get back yeah, on, right? <laughs> right? So I did that. I went and, and rode over in Europe for a while, but I think reality started to set in. I mean, that you weren't going to get your gold medal that way. Yeah. I mean, I was like, <laughs> an injury like that is so hard to come back from. I never came back like all the way. Yeah. I would think that you, you know, would never come back to the peak you, know, you were at. I was sore all the time. And so I was like, you know, maybe I should think about doing something different with my life. So it's still a hard transition. I came back to the US. I was teaching riding lessons. I went and lived. Thankfully, I had the option of going back and living with my parents. So I went back, taught riding lessons while I figured out what I was going to do. With that must my- have been really hard. It was hard to like come to that realization, like, all right, I put everything into this one basket. You know, thankfully I'd gone to college. That was the first thing is years yeah, before. Yeah, I mean, hallelujah. Yeah. I yeah. told my parents, I was like, I'm not going to college. I'm just going to ride. They were like, nope, think again. <laughs> so, so at least I had finished my undergrad, um, went back, taught riding lessons and was like, well, you know, at the time I, I spoke Spanish. Um, and so I had gotten another job on the side. I had a bunch of like side hustles trying to cobble together something in, um, I, I was doing translation interpretation for a bunch of different agencies in North Carolina. And I thought, well, I really do like this and it feels like I'm serving the community and, but nobody has any like management skills so that pushed me to go back to, I went to grad school and got my MBA. So. And which was the beginning of a new career. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so you ended up working with the company publicly traded that was all about Selling carbon miles. Yeah. So what happened was, you know, under grad school, I did an MBA. I'll just done an MA in international development. But I got interested along the way. I did an internship um, and then a consulting gig in um, with a, in Honduras. I worked with coffee farmers, and so it was a chance to see like the coffee markets were like in the toilet at the time, and you could really see on the ground the problems. I mean, farmers were like pulling their kids out of school and. 
you know, people were going bankrupt. They were uprooting their trees and what nobody was, was hedged. This was in um, 99. Okay. No, I'm sorry. No, this was 2001, 2002. Okay. Yeah. All those years kind of all mushed together, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it was after, right. After September 11th, it was, yeah, 2002, I went down there and it was kind of a long running. So what I realized, I mean, these were farmers that were in like really low quality coffee markets. They were not hedged. And so I was working for an organization that was trying to do teach them financial risk management, think about getting them into like specialty coffees, organic coffees, mm-hmm. anything so they could command a premium. And I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. This is like life changing. I mean, this is really like what I want to do with the rest of my life. Make a difference. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And use markets to do it. Use a market-based mechanism to do it. So I learned everything I could about coffee, went back to the U.S., and at that point, there was a brand new exchange getting started. I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur, but there was this new exchange that was letting people trade carbon credits. So again, it was like, hey, you can achieve like a social and environmental goal using financial tools. And so it was the first place you could trade futures and options on carbon. And I remember when that happened and thinking, yeah, because I remember thinking, wow, this is a really interesting new dynamic, you know, as everyone started to think about climate and Mm -hmm. carbon and how that works. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. And just putting a monetary, like a price on carbon emissions and then letting traders do, the market does what it does. What it does. You know, right. So, I mean, it was a great like learning experience because we were starting an exchange from the ground up. I mean, I was one of the first, I don't know, I think there were the first 15 hires there. I wasn't a founder, but I was an early hire and just kind of helped grow the exchange. And then it was acquired. I mean, it was, (laughs) well, this is a mixed tale of success. It was successful in the sense that, you know, the guy who founded it was a, was a, you know, kind of a gene. He's known in the commodity markets as this, you know, father of all sorts of financial futures and whatnot, Richard Sandor. And um, he was successful in creating a real business. I mean, it was acquired by ICE for just over $600 million. However, it always depended on federal action to limit carbon emissions. And so at the time, you know, this was 2005-ish, mm-hmm. 2006, um, everyone thought we're going to get national federal carbon regulation and these markets are going to just take off. Well, it didn't it happen. Didn't happen. It didn't happen. So- um, it made it halfway through Congress. It was died in the Senate and just fell apart. And so ICE had acquired the Chicago Climate Exchange, but then nothing happened at the federal level, and it just everyone the, the markets just unwound really quickly. So, but they went to Europe. They went to Europe. It's still trading still exists in a small, limited form here in the states, but it just has never lived up to its potential, which is unfortunate because so, yeah. there is a lot of potential in that. Yeah. So I mean, then you, I hope our grand our grandchildren will pay the price for uh, this. Uh, seriously, I mean, it's yeah. just it is it's such greed and power. Yeah. It is. It, it, I, we could go on a massive tangent on that, but yeah. we're going to stick to you. <laughs> <laughs> so then you had done a thesis mm-hmm. um, about the coffee trade. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, became very interested in the organic markets. Yeah. Yeah. So back in grad school, before I, the way I found myself to the Chicago Climate Exchange is I had written my thesis on like, why couldn't we have new futures markets, financial markets for these types of environmental derivatives? 
And I had met the founder through, I basically was like, I'm going to interview you. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and Richard was like, okay. I mean, he's very generous with grad students. He's got a soft spot for, for students. I think most people do. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, that's like the way, you know, the secret power. So I interviewed him and then he was like, I think he had just offhandedly was like, well, I'll stay in touch. So then I was like, oh, guess what? You don't even know what you just said there because <laughs> I'm staying in touch I'm with staying you. In touch. So I tell people like the best skill set for an entrepreneur is to be able to stalk just shy of getting law enforcement Completely. <laughs> I mean, you have to literally be shameless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how I found my way to you, too. I was like, oh, Gotham gal. I- <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, but the, when you did, yeah. I mean, and I started doing research and talking to you, it was, there were other people that were involved with you then that I knew. Okay. Yeah. You sure, know, sure, because but- it's not a big world. Yeah. Particularly in the good businesses. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, you know, you can't be, you can't get labeled as crazy, but yet you still have to like get yourself in front you of people You have to be aggressive. Somehow. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and unfortunately for women, yeah. there is a fine line yeah. because they're just, you know, looked at and right. and in a very different Not way. seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know, they become, they're a bitch, they're too right. aggressive and, you know, right. and, and that would not happen to men. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, totally not. Totally not. Um, but yeah, I did this with Richard. I was like, let's, you know, I have this idea. And so I think, you know, however many times I called him or reached out, he was like, why don't you, I tell you what, why don't you just come and work for, for me? So that's a perfect idea. So I graduated, I worked, I did a short stint at the World Bank and then I went to Chicago and it was just a fascinating look at how to get an exchange started. And then, um, you know, the timing wasn't right for Mercari. At this point, Mercaris has still just been a, an idea for my thesis. Right. I really needed that five years of real world experience about like how an exchange actually works. Um, but I returned to that idea and founded Mercaris after having like the experience of uh, helping to grow Chicago Climate Exchange. And he gave you the best advice, which yeah. is don't make this a nonprofit, make yeah. this a profit business. Yeah. yeah. And it was just interesting. I mean, you know, that business in terms of the organic market mm-hmm. since you started. So when did Mercaris launch? So we actually incorporated in mid-2012. Okay. However, it was not – I was still working as a consultant. My co-founder and I, you know, you got to work up the nerve to actually like quit your other day jobs. For and, sure. Usually so, when you raise the money, that happens. Yeah. Helps. I mean, we just had a landing page and like a white paper. And the, our first paying customers came in early 2015. So got it, and yeah. you were essentially an exchange between the organic markets, starting first with um, beans. Or- yeah, so we are two things. I mean, even though we, Chris and I, both got our you know, background in the exchange world, we're we are a data company first. So we're market data and then trading both sides for um, for organic and non GMO ag commodities, what we would loosely call identity preserved commodities. Mm-hmm. Because these are fast-growing markets, they have um, environmental performance. So you've got to—it's you know, organic is all about soil health and reduced, you know, chemical pesticides and fertilizer. It's you know, farm worker health and water quality, all these things. But the average consumer doesn't describe it like that. They're just like, oh, I want to buy organic. Correct. And what yeah. I think what's interesting about that is that if you are Whole Foods and you happen to know this year, and I remember having this conversation mm-hmm. with you in 2015, yeah. if you're going to buy, if you need to make this many cupcakes that are organic over the course of this year, right. you want to buy this much organic flour, yeah. but there wasn't a marketplace to even lock down the price. Yeah. It was just, It was just, you know- it's like the it, Wild West. It was the Wild yeah. West. And so you created something that had not been done. Right. 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, two things were going on with like the Whole Foods example. They're trying to source, you know, organic cocoa or sugar or flour or whatnot. For them, they're not necessarily handling like the raw organic corn. No, certainly not. But it's an input cost. And like the first thing is like, what business do you know that can like not ignore raw material or input costs? I mean, there was no sort of very rigorous uh, way of tracking the market supply demand price. So we provide that those types of analytics. Um, for someone like Whole Foods, for example, when they say, hey, we have a tar- growth target of X and the investors say, well, great. Is there even or- enough organic farmland to source the materials that are going to fuel all this growth? Exactly. No one was answering those questions in a, in a strategic way. So that's uh, honestly, that's the core of our business. That's where we derive the most revenue from that type of analysis. And the other side of the equation is, and then how are you going to procure it? Are you going to get on the phone and make 85 phone calls? Are you going to blast out emails? Are you going to just do a bunch of like very surprisingly large companies? I won't name names. We're doing like handshake deals. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so we said, put these contracts, make them electronic, put them online, trade them like a, you know, like, like a grown up. Like, yes, like <laughs> right. in a market. Right, right. And so just curious, in 2015 versus now, mm-hmm. how much has that organic market grown yeah. in um, products? So total overall, like the whole value of organic food, fiber, et cetera, is last year it just crossed $50 billion in the U.S. Okay. That has been, you can look at compound annual growth of 10, greater than 10% year on year for the last 10 years. Okay. So it's been very strong growth. I mean, there's been a little bit of a blip when we had the... um, when we had the uh, financial crisis, right? Well, it still continues to grow, right? <laughs> everything yeah. flipped. Yeah. But what uh, do you think this is number is going to be? When is it going to get to a hundred billion dollars? Oh gosh, you know, in the next, just in the U.S., it'll be within the next decade. It'll it'll grow. That's what I that. thought. Yeah. And so, how has your business changed mm-hmm. over time? Um, you know, everyone's business changes. Yeah. Your original concept, because yeah. you were really a pioneer in this right. area, and so. What people needed wasn't necessarily what you thought they might have yeah. needed. Yeah, it's a combination of being stubborn, but also recognizing when the original plans, you know, change. So it's been, you know, the old saw about takes twice as long and twice as much capital as you think to get, you know, that we found to be true. Um, but for example, my original business plan, I mean, we were selling to farmers. We were like, there are thousands, they're small, but there's thousands of these guys. They're going to make up our core customers. Well, turns out farmers <laughs> are expensive to acquire. They're always out in the field planting. Ironic, you know, who'd have thought? Um, <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't like paying a lot of money for things. So while farmers are still a key stakeholder, and we've got a lot of them, we've got like five hundred of them on the platform. They actually don't pay us much money, especially not for data. The folks who pay the bills are the, you know, they're the CPG companies, they're the investment banks, they are the insurance companies, they are, you know, those are our core customers on the data side. The farmers are great to, we let them trade. We like for them to trade and, and uh, you know, elevators and other agribusinesses trade as well. Mm-hmm. But that was one, and it was a hard realization to come to that because, you know, we kept trying to sell. We're very mission oriented. We, we got to support Well, you were giving back farmer. because it was the farmers, the family farmers. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah. your farmers were really your platform. Yeah. And then it was, you know, how do you, how do you help those farmers with the platform? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, now like we get, you know, this is like, if you're not paying for the products, you are the product and we're careful, but we collect a lot of information from farmers and then we can turn around and we anonymize it. We make sure we're not like, you know, 
calling them out. Them. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But that's a big part of the way we create data is we, we collect data from farmers, from grain elevators, and we turn it into these usable market insights. And then, of course, they're also generating trading fees because those are the folks, the direct handlers of commodities that are the ones that are buying and selling on the platform. So is your business at this point pretty much um, – executing on what you finally figured out. Finally, yeah. That, and I'll tell you the other lesson learned, again, Joanne, this is like, you know, insight that helps, I hope we get time to talk about the community that you've created of entrepreneurs, but I'm an economist by training. My co-founder is a software engineer. Neither one of us have marketing in our backgrounds. We spent a lot of time on like getting the product right and always getting better and better data. We have finally in the last year hired a marketing firm and a B2B type marketing firm that kind of knows our industry. It makes so a big difference. For the first time, I mean, not that we didn't have a few like press headlines here and there, but now we're being intentional about being seen as thought leaders in the industry, um, doing both push and pull type marketing efforts, uh, just investing in that area. So oh, you're really the only person doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our competition has always been there are a couple of things. One is that you know, when we go to Whole Foods and we say, look, we know you've built a successful business without us. Like, let us make you more profitable, more efficient, better. Um, but you're always fighting like the status quo. Like, well, you know, I've always done this. Well, way. it's like disruption, yeah. right? But at the end of the day, yeah. what you're providing is in many ways a SaaS product. Yeah, that's right. Right. So yeah. it's like you can really monitor mm-hmm. your business. You know what the margins are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know where this stuff is going to land and load in this country, right. what you're going to lock in at a price point, how right. you're going to distribute it. I mean, yeah. those are things that I think a lot of people totally did on handshakes and yeah. just, you know, it all sort of worked. Yeah. But, you know, you're you're talking about margins getting smaller mm-hmm. and- um, And organics turned into big business. Big I mean, business. I tell folks it's not even after the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods. It's not Whole Foods that's the biggest seller of organic foods. It's Walmart because Walmart is automatically the biggest of anything whenever it gets into, you know, whatever category it gets into. Yeah. So. When I do presentations, sometimes I put up a slide that says, like, you walked into the grocery store 30 years ago, you bought milk. You can still buy, like, milk, but now you can buy organic milk or grass-fed milk or Soy pea milk protein or milk. almond milk. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And they're still commodities. That's just – it's, you know, it's they're, – they're, It's changing. They're, yeah. 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 And, and you can do this for anything. Yes. Coffee, milk, yes. eggs, whatever you can. And it's it's – started at the top of the funnel, mm-hmm. right, because it was so expensive. Right. But it's now, you know – Oh, yeah. Bleeding downwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah interesting. So since I've known you, you've also moved from Washington back to Chicago. Well, Chicago, the, the reverse, right, actually. Right. Yeah. Oh, sh- Chicago, you went to Washington. Washington. That's right. You've had two children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, I know when I met you, I was like, I don't know what you're waiting for. Right, yes. I know. You were like, okay, now. I was like, are you in cahoots with my mother? <laughs> I've heard that before, by the way. But, you know, yeah. it's like you've been with your husband a long time. A long time. We met in undergrad and then we we're, oh gosh, we've been married just over 10 years now. And It was time. It was time. Yeah. We've now got a four-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And how's that changed your life? <laughs> I mean, it's bonkers. You know, like every cliche, I said like every cliche is true in some way, in some shape or form. There's like a grain of truth there. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's amazing. Like I, I remember going to the, the festival that the, the women entrepreneur festival that you organized for years. Yes. And I still remember there's a phrase one year, the keynote said, I can't remember her name. Oh my gosh. Um, but she said, I don't seek a joyful imbalance is what she said. That was the, I think it was Anne Marie Slaughter. Was it Anne Marie? Might've been Anne Marie okay. Slaughter. Yeah. Okay. 
but joyful imbalance. And that is what I'm living is the joyful imbalance. I think we yeah. all live joyful imbalance. Yeah. I think that's the if perfect you're, If you're way. lucky, if you're privileged, if you're lucky enough to have joyful imbalance, like I count myself. I think that's great. Yeah. And how's it changed you as an entrepreneur? So I will say, I think there's like a secret power that is overlooked. And that is, I was just telling you that I wish I could take my pre-parent, my pre-mother self and apply the lessons learned that I have now to that because I am so much more efficient. I mean- you when, don't have time. When the baby goes be. down for a nap, you talk about someone who can efficiently use whatever time they're given, whether it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 90 minutes, pick a parent, pick a mother <laughs> who's, who's like, I don't know how long, much time I have. Let me make get the most out of this time. For sure. And I, you don't have time to micromanage. Yeah. You know, you want to hire the people that right. you trust. Right. They're going to execute. Yep. And you build your team. Yeah. You know, you don't have time to like yeah. diddle around. It's like... Um, I don't know. It's like boot camp for, you know, but yeah, those lessons like here here you go. You wish you could, but now I'm I'm like way more. I'm like 10x. <laughs> There's the 10x. <laughs> Doing better. And how is yeah. it, and 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 how was your journey raising capital? You know, everyone talks about, yeah. you know, it's harder to raise money as capital. It's harder yeah. as an African American woman to yeah. raise capital. Yeah. I mean, so S2G is the is our lead investor. Yes. They were our lead investor for our A round and they still sit on our board and have been a great source of support. And they've like now invested in like 45 companies. They're one of the most active. They just raised a second fund. So amazing. Yeah. So you, it really wasn't that difficult. Well, I mean, look, it's hard for everybody. It is. I feel like I'm the exception that proves the rule because, you know, we, um, we had some really great early investors. I mean, you believed in us from our, the beginning in our seed round. We had um, Piero Midiar. It is true. It's about networks. Um, Pierre Omidyar invested in Mercaris because, not because I had like track record of an entrepreneur, but he had seen me as a White House fellow. I did a one year stint as a White House fellow That's in the right. midst of all this. And Pierre Omidyar sat on the White House fellow board under the Obama administration. And, um, and so I went to him after the year was over and I was like, Hey, I've got this crazy idea. He's like, great. You know, I and believe he's the in perfect you. person for that because yeah. I think he's done an unbelievable yeah. job with the capital yeah. he has in putting it back into the economy. Yeah. Um, and then um, Mitch and Frida Kapoor. Who are wonderful Who are wonderful. Beings. And they they were were also early investors in. And they said, look, we like what you're doing. We think that you're, you know, and they were there from the beginning. And having two or three investors like that is the difference between success and not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. you know, I think that the importance that most entrepreneurs don't realize, you got, you'll take money where you can get it. Yeah. But the importance of having really good investors with great connections mm-hmm. and an understanding of the reality of how businesses are grown, yeah. that knowledge is worth every penny because yeah. I do see a lot of founders who raise money and there's no one else at the table for yeah. them. And, um, you know, I heard from a founder this week, um, she kind of pivoted mm-hmm. and um, she said, you know, what should I do here in terms of the pivot? I'm thinking I need to like tell my investors if they want their money back, they can oh. have it. <laughs> you know, how I'm going to write this letter. I was like, you must be kidding. I'm so glad you called me, <laughs> right. you know, because, you know, I always say my, I'm always open in terms of like anytime I'll help yeah. anybody that I am invested in. Yeah. I said, no, no, no. You just write the happy letter. Right. We've moved into this. This is fantastic. I hope all is well. Right. This is what my needs are. Right. Well, and here's an area like you gave me advice here and I still like, I don't know how to live this because I am who I am. But, you know, this is the like typical in entrepreneurship. White guy walks in and is like, this is a billion dollar company and people invest in him. 
I, it could be because I'm a woman. It could be because I'm a black woman. It could be because I'm an economist by training. It could be. That when I went in, I pitched over and over Mercaris. I was like, I want the valuation to me what made sense. You know, I was trying to raise, you know, we've raised 6 million to date across um, three rounds now. Um, Which isn't that much. Isn't that much. But I didn't want the huge, ironically, it probably would have been easier if I could go in and give that pitch and say, give me, you know, $20 million and it's a billion dollar company and we're going to go public. I am absolutely pursuing like the biggest business I, I can, but it just, to me, the economics of it did not make sense to yet. raise on that level yet. Yet. And that's, and that's, I feel like, you know, I feel like there's room for, everyone always says, you know, women need to like think bigger. I agree. Except sometimes I think men need to be realistic. I mean, there's a reason VC as a sector has not made money. There's been some rock stars because everyone's incented to say like, all right, fine. You want a billion dollar business? We're a billion dollar business. They're not. We will be a billion dollar business, but we're raising, we're doing it kind of our way. Right. So. Yeah. Listen, slow and steady always wins the race. Yeah. You know, I think that you learned a lot over this time and you also realized that your first business plan really wasn't what you ended up right. becoming. Right. If someone had tossed $10 million into that yeah. pot, you would have blown through $10 million to find out the exact same yeah. thing that you found on very little money. Yeah. And you would have had a valuation that was so out of whack that eventually you would have probably had to have a down round to move forward. Yeah. And so, you know- Well, and if if it's true though, saying that like a typical, like we've been careful about the investors we work with, but if it's true that for some VCs, it's like, hey, I've got a portfolio here. I want a few of them, these guys to wash out so I can focus on the like the rock stars. We just are not, you know, we've been a slow and steady, like you said. Um, my co-founder wants us to do a slide of all the companies that started kind of in our space at the same time that have now like gone out of business. Which, That's a good, co- you should you know, <laughs> because here we are still, you know, still growing. By the way, Jean did this at Sweden. Same mm, exact thing. Yeah. She's like, I am not doing that. Yeah. They all went out of business. She's the one person yeah. standing and the company's valued, you know, yeah. in the hundred million dollar range. We, I mean, we had some uncomfortable conversations, even with our existing, some of our existing investors, because you weren't like stepping everyone it on the says gas. that, but they're like, why don't you? Yeah. You weren't stepping it on the <laughs> right, gas. Right. And I know that everyone was concerned about yeah. that, but at the end of the day, it's your company yeah. and you have to build it at the cadence you want to build it. Yeah. Um, knowing that you've got to also deal with the other people right. around the table. There's right. a balance. Yeah. So where do you see Macaris being? And, you know, here's the thing we've done our homework. I mean, sometimes like you're one of most of our investors get it. Like data is the data is the sexy part of the business. Completely. But, um, but you have to like do the homework. So we have built this very deep, um, not only expertise, but this deep database of cash market prices. And in the trading world, you know, physical trading right now is what we're doing. So, you know, I sell you corn, you pay me money, Mercari takes a transaction fee, we do it all online. That's the end of the transaction. But we're now ready to move into becoming more of a financial services firm. So, and you have to have the underlying cash market data, as it's called, set to do that. So we have gotten approval from the CFTC, which is the regulatory body for derivatives trading in the in the U.S., um, and we now are getting ready to launch the first swap contracts on organic grain. So we're, we're partnering with a, with a broker to do this, but the idea is that our data can be used now to settle derivatives contracts for organic grain. So we'll let people hedge price risk just like you would in any other commodity market. Interesting. And it's purely, it's based on the underlying physical asset, but it is a financial tool to, to do that. And that's, um, so you're you really becoming a seeing, commodities market, right? Right, and so yeah. your, your years on the commodities exchange, yeah, were they 
Exactly. That's really exactly. exciting. So, so that is exciting. So that's our big, um, you know, lift Next for thing. this year. Yeah, that's a big yeah. lift. The other thing is, and this will be kind of kind of in the pipeline is um, insurance products. So the idea, and we are not an insurance company, but again, the data lets you build insurance companies. So the fact that we are the we are the sole owners of all this great price data for sure. And now a bunch of other folks can build things on top of it, and it should make you know makes our customers very sticky. We already have a very low churn rate, and now if you're building financial products over top of this even better. Right. So, so you're essentially an open marketplace. Yeah. I mean, we can we can give you data to do all sorts of things now and, and the data is really good and no one else is doing it. So even the farmers were worth something. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. At the end right. of the day, it may have looked like we were taking the scenic route, but we were not. <laughs> you were not. That's great. <laughs> and we've maintained trust in what we're doing because that's the other thing is other folks have tried, but we really are neutral. We ourselves do not trade these things. We never take a position. Um, and You're that just providing makes us different than a, a lot platform. of people. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. So, well, yeah. thank you for coming on the podcast yeah, today. Thank I think you what you're doing me. is just amazing. Oh, thank you, Joanne. Like right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kelly, for joining me on Positively Gotham Gal. You can learn about all the exciting work happening at Mark Harris by visiting Mark Harris, M-E-R-C-A-R-I-S.com.